This is the Author Archive podcast. Deborah Ellis is a young Canadian woman who's written a book for children called The Breadwinner. It's about life under the Taliban for a young girl in Kabul. That's a situation which mercifully doesn't exist anymore. But when Deborah Ellis went to that area, did she actually go into Afghanistan? I was in Pakistan in the refugee camps. I didn't get into Afghanistan itself. Did you meet this girl? I met the mother of a child who does what the girl does in the book, which is cut off her hair and wear boys' clothing and pretend to be a boy in order to work in the streets of Kabul to earn a living for her family. So what made you go to this camp in the first place? Were you researching? Did you know you were researching? Yes, I, I came into the whole uh, Afghanistan issue from an anti-war women's rights perspective. I've been doing that kind of work anyway back in Canada. And when the Taliban took over Kabul in September of 96, it seemed like a natural fit with work I'd been doing anyway. So I w was over there once just to try to find out how we could be more useful back in Canada. And then one of the things I thought that I could do would be to collect the stories of these women who'd been involved in this war for 20 years, what their lives have been like. So I went over there to interview women and children for uh, a nonfiction adult book um, called Women of the Afghan War. So I collected a couple hundred stories from all periods of, of that war. And while I was there, I, I met the mother of this child, and I knew as soon as she told me her story that I would write the children's novel. Um, how did you communicate? What was the actual practicality of it with, a, with an interpreter? I used uh, interpreters most of the time, yes, uh, different ones. I worked with a number of women's organizations, and I met a woman over there who was one of the, the premier high school principals of Kabul before the Taliban took over, and she knew a lot of people because a lot of her students were now refugees, and she took me around, she introduced me to a lot of people. How long ago was this? About two and a half years ago. What was the overriding emotion? Um, was it fear? I mean, this, the, the, the mother in your book at one point, she says, I'm a university graduate. I am not going to do this with anger, kind of affronted, being affronted. Mm -hmm. Is that emotion widespread? I think that emotion was more widespread at the beginning of the situation. Nobody really expected that the Taliban were going to hold power as long as they have. The, the people I talked to thought that the restrictions will be temporary. You know, they're, they're a new government, they're going to get their act together, they're going to be obnoxious at the beginning because all governments are. But then life will get back to normal. They never expected it would last this long. So uh, initially, once they accepted that it was lasting a while, there was a great deal of anger. People got out who could get out. Um, but then as, as time goes by and there's no hope for things getting any better, when there's no, nothing to look forward to on the horizon, there's no place for that anger to go. People start losing the edge of that anger and they just become hopeless. And that's primarily what I saw in the camps um, was this sense of, of hopelessness. You know, when, when you and I get up in the morning, we, we have a sense of what we're going to do during the day and we have a sense that maybe in six months we can do something else and we can, we can plan and we know that we're going to be able to achieve it reasonably. But these, these women, they have no sense of being able to control any aspect of their future. They have no sense of the future anymore. And I found that to be one of the, the most tragic things about the women that I met. And do they um, think of the individual Taliban as demons? You have a, a touching scene where uh, the little girl takes, she becomes a letter reader because mm -hmm. she's literate, and uh, a Taliban comes and asks her to, to read the letter. And 
she at that point realizes that he's human, he is, he is capable of tears. So uh, what's the view of the individual Taliban? I put that scene in the book because I, I come into this from a, a nonviolent perspective, and one of the, the basic tenets of nonviolence is to recognize the human being within the enemy. And that it was difficult with the Taliban because their laws and their, their structures against women are so oppressive. But I, I wanted to, to put that in there to show that these are actual human beings who make this up, who make up these laws and make up this government. Um, the, the feeling, and also I think I could put that scene in there because I don't live in Afghanistan. If I had to live there and deal with these people the way that they were dealing with me, I think I would find it a lot more difficult to, to see them as human beings. Kabul used to be wonderful, used to be beautiful. Used to be the hot spot of Central Asia, I'm told, where people would go to for a hot time on a Saturday night. And that's where they start and this is where they get to. Did you get any flavor of a, of a why? Because here in the West, 2001, the whole thing we're thinking all the time is why, well, how? Well, I, I think the why and how are, are in some ways the easiest questions to answer. Why and how is because different countries decided to muck about in Afghanistan and use that as a staging ground for Cold War battles that had nothing essentially to do with the Afghan people. Before the Soviet invaded, the CIA was already in the country mucking about and destabilizing things, which wasn't hard to do because the communist government was pretty unstable. They, they were fighting each other the way those governments always did. So it didn't take a whole lot for the CIA to go in there and stir things up. Then, of course, the Soviet Union blundered in with its tanks and, and did that horrific invasion that it did, and which gave Ronald Reagan the, the notion to pour in billions of dollars in, in weapons and army training and CIA personnel into the country, which just made it much, much worse. So they were essentially fighting for freedom into the last drop of Afghan blood. And that's the legacy that we're looking at today. The Taliban is not something that dropped down on Earth from the planet Mars. They are an artificially created army. Um, they came out of the Cold War. We bear responsibility for that because we allowed our governments to do what they did in Afghanistan. Where does education sit um, in this? Because again, the little girl says um, she can't write this to the Taliban because they can't read and write anyway. Mm -hmm. So communication, so is this uh, a regime, a way of thought that that surfs along uh, on a tide of ignorance? Ignorance is a pretty powerful tide to surf on. I think there have been a lot of governments throughout history who've, who've managed to surf that tide for quite some time. The Taliban were initially boys who were orphaned during the Soviet War. They were trained in madrasas or religious schools, so-called religious schools in Pakistan, and they were trained essentially to do two things, which is to recite portions of the Quran and to fight uh, a modern war with modern weapons. They have no experience of women, they have no experience of family. Um, and so you've got a situation where the, the streets of, of the cities are controlled by teenage boys, 18, 19 years old, who have whips and guns and complete authority to beat any woman that they see that they decide to beat for any kind of infraction. And if that were London or New York or Toronto, I think we would find that a, a totally frightening, horrifying prospect. What about the, the, the symbols, this, um, this burqa? Mm -hmm. The women that you met in the camp, what was their view of that? The burqa has some tradition in Afghanistan, um, but for a long time the women have been working toward having it as a choice. 
um, the women in the cities did wear it as a choice, or they often they did not wear it uh, again as a choice. And it had been something that they'd been sort of struggling with for the last, well, pretty much since the turn of the century, the old century. The women in the cities were wearing modern dress, by and large. Uh, they wore mini skirts and pants, and they had the same kind of weird hairdo, hairdos that we had in the 60s, and, and all of that stuff. The, the burqa is foreign to most of, the most, most of the women from the cities. Their mothers didn't wear it. They certainly have never worn it. And then now, all of a sudden, they have to wear it. And little things come out, like music. You've read that the Taliban don't have music, but then music is is everywhere in our culture. Mm -hmm. It's used, I mean, it's used for joy, it's used for selling, mm -hmm. it's used for filling in the gaps in mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. How, can, you know, how do you say there will be no music? Because it is, it is written into the human soul. People will hum, and, and people Af will whistle, yeah. people will sing. And Afghan, Afghanistan was a very musical culture. There are a lot of instruments that are part of, of the culture that are created there. There are songs and dances that are, are part of the, the tribal traditions in Afghanistan. I, I think when you've got enough guns and enough power and enough people who are afraid, uh, you can pretty much make them do anything or not do anything. But it becomes really problematic because uh, there have been cases where children have been uh, imprisoned and beaten for simply, you know, drumming something or whistling or singing, you know, the way kids do and they feel like doing that. And uh, so it's, it's, it's not simply a, a law against Western music because we see on the, the newspaper, the, the news shows that they, they will take cassette tapes mm. and they'll pull them all out and have them like a decoration. It's not simply uh, restrictions against Madonna, for example. It's uh, restrictions against the everyday singing and whistling and, and just kind of morning songs and things that you were talking about. It's so difficult to understand in a culture that um, kind of rejoices in its sexuality and mm -hmm. young boys have more t t testosterone usually than they, than they know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And here they are using that energy, that procreative energy, if you like, to destroy. It is, it's an aberration. It's a, when, you were in, when you were confronted with it, what did you feel? What was the raw thought that you had? Oh, I was afraid all the time I was in Pakistan. And I was there as a very privileged person. I had my, my passport and my airline ticket home strapped to my body. I knew I was getting out of there. I was afraid the entire time. And there's this, this atmosphere of, of fear within Peshawar, the, the border cities. Um, not only uh, are they afraid of the Taliban, and there's a very strong Taliban presence in that area, but the different factions that were fighting in the Civil War uh, still have very strong presences. And there are assassinations and, and so forth all the time. So um, it's just a very big atmosphere of fear all over the place. The woman who started this story, The Breadwinner, mm -hmm. where were you when, she, when you met her? What was she doing? It was really remarkable. There are, there's a, a woman's organization operating secretly in Afghanistan. They're called the Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan, and a lot of the money from this book goes to them. They do, among other things, secret schools and newspapers and things like that, uh, and membership in their organization is punishable by death. They, one of the things that they did was uh, they smuggled some women out of Afghanistan to attend an International Women's Day rally in Pakistan in Peshawar. And uh, I was able to talk to some of the women that they smuggled out, including the mother of the child who does this in the book. 
and um, so that's where I met her. And did she sit and tell you this story um, in full? Was she, was she pleased to tell? It was kind of funny the way it happened because I was at the end of the interview, I had run out of questions and we were packing up to go and she just kind of mentioned casually <laughs> that her daughter does this. And uh, as soon as she did that, I sort of sat her back down and, and got back into it. She was very proud of her daughter and uh, kind of in awe that her daughter has such courage. And her daughter was only like 10 years old or something. Amazing child. And the, the idea is that this family is all women because the father is put in jail. Right. For something, for what? I have no idea. Yeah, in, in, in the book he's in jail because he has a foreign education, which is enough <laughs> to put you in jail in Afghanistan. And for the women to go out on their own, they have to have a letter pinned to them from their husband. That's right. They either have to have a male escort, which could be a son or a younger brother or husband, or, or they have to have a note pinned to them, which is really funny because most of the Taliban can't read. So. <laughs> That's Deborah Ellis talking about her children's novel, or her novel for children, called The Breadwinner. Now, interestingly, I recorded that conversation in 2001 and at that time the Taliban weren't in control in Afghanistan. Now of course they're back in control so everything that Deborah was writing about is sadly relevant again. This is the Author Archive podcast. Mm -hmm.